When we began last week looking at Mark chapter 13, we began uh, a little bit of a different approach. I believe last week I had said we were starting a, a sub-series within the main series, and we're not rushing through Mark 13. We could, if we wanted to, we could power through Mark 13 in one Sunday, but we would leave knowing more perhaps, but I don't believe would leave it growing more. And so my desire is that we pause, spend a few weeks on Mark 13, and then we'll continue in our progression through the rest of the Gospel of Mark um, as, as we're able so between now and the next couple of Sundays, we'll continue in Mark 13, and we'll continue to conclude it. Last week, we looked, at, uh, we looked at what Jesus taught on the end times, and this week, I want us to take some time to look at what Jesus teaches in some other scripture that gives us what it teaches on the Antichrist. Now, I realize that when we hear the term Antichrist, I think there's a number of ideas and, and thoughts and perhaps even images that come to mind, both for Christians and non-Christians. I would imagine that a large number of individuals uh, picture an individual who is set and bent on world domination, who is the epitome of all evil, who will go around stamping 666 on people's heads or foreheads or cut their heads off if they won't, uh, and will ultimately uh, demand worship and will ruthlessly kill anyone who doesn't follow him. And while those ideas may have some roots in Scripture— I think much of what we've arrived at, even some of those things themselves, those images themselves, are distortion of what God's Word teaches. And so uh, my desire is that we back up and back away from some of the things that we've arrived at over the years and really take time to look at face value what God's Word says. I can remember growing up in church, my parents were missionaries. I've shared with you that my dad was a missionary in Alaska, and uh, he pastored a couple of different churches. And I remember going to youth camp or even in youth service that when uh, my youth pastor would talk about the end times, oftentimes it concluded with a showing of a movie called A Thief in the Night. And if you're older, you may remember the movie A Thief in the Night. And I, I mean, I'm just like a junior higher, and there's a scene in there that, that using probably the most state-of-the-art that the late 70s could produce, they had a, a scene that involved a guillotine and individuals who weren't serving Christ and just showed this in youth group. I mean, I remember just being traumatized thinking, oh my goodness, this is the end times and the Antichrist and all of these different things. And it's very easy to have these things that we've seen in, in our minds as a filter for God's Word. But we want God's Word to be our filter in our lens for life, when we view life, when we approach life. And that's what Jesus takes time with his disciples, is to begin to address the idea and understanding of who the Antichrist is and really the spirit of the Antichrist. If you look at what Jesus begins by teaching his disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 4, he begins to share with them about the end times and what to expect. And one of the things that Jesus makes clear to them is his focus is not so much on time, meaning chronological, understanding it's this and this and this and this, but rather on the times, discernment of the seasons, to be alert and to be aware of the seasons that would be coming that would indicate that his return is drawing near. And sometimes I think that we can make a mistake, if you're a Christian here, that we can make the mistake, or even a non-Christian alike, we can make the mistake of focusing on times, meaning chronological, that there's this event and this event and this timeline and this thing, rather than recognizing what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about the times, leave the time to me. Focus on the times and, and recognizing the, the seasons, recognizing the things that are coming, so that in the end, two things. Number one, in verse 4 and 5, he says, don't be deceived. 
His primary teaching to the disciples in all of this is don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't focus on the wrong things. I think one of the greatest ways for an individual to be deceived is to focus on the wrong thing. And that's what Jesus is saying is to his disciples, to you and to me, is don't be focused on the wrong things. Don't be deceived, but take time to listen to what I'm saying. So he tells them to not only be deceived, to be alert, but then secondly, his focus is that they would be ready for his return. That they would be watchful and ready for his return. And a watchfulness and a readiness for Christ's return has just as much as to do with an inward posture of our heart as well as the outward demonstration of our lives. It's just, it's just as much a matter that we have our hearts ready. In fact, I would suggest, strongly suggest, and Scripture would, would, would back it up, that it's far more important when it comes to the end times and the nearness of Christ, it's far more important to have your heart ready and stockpiled with the truth of God's Word and His perspective and the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than to have your house stockpiled with all sorts of supplies and food and dry goods that you would need to perhaps survive some sort of end times event. The focus is that our hearts are ready. And so as we look at these end time, the things that Jesus teaches on the end times, and even today in what Jesus teaches on the Antichrist, my desire, in fact, if you came hoping that I would pull out the charts and give you times and dates and timelines and all of these things and help attach current events to, to, to prophetic words, then I hate to tell you this is probably not the best way to introduce your message, but you're going to be disappointed. My focus in this message, as in every single message, is that your heart is examined by the truth of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit works in you to reveal Himself to you, and that we leave not knowing more, but we leave with our lives in greater alignment with who Christ desires for us to be, and we leave with a greater dependence on the power of His Holy Spirit as we live our lives day in and day out, waiting and ready for the return of Christ. And the truth is, Christ is coming whether or not you're ready. And we're going to look at the return of Christ next week, but the reality of it is the return of Christ when He comes, as the Bible says He will, the return of Christ will impact every single person here. It will impact every person that you love, whether they know Christ or they don't. And so we'll spend time next week looking at Christ's return. But let's take time to look at Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse number 14 for just a few moments. I want to look at this. We're going to look at verses 14 through 23, but we're going to divide it up into a couple of sections. So let's begin in verse number 14. So Jesus, we're beginning mid-sentence in the warnings Jesus has given. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And we'll just stop there for a moment. When we look at what Jesus is teaching about the Antichrist and about the end times, he uses a phrase in verse 14. If you can put verse 14 back up on the screen, just have it there for us for, us for just a moment. It says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. That phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, 
is a phrase that has its origins in the book of Daniel. Daniel is an Old Testament book, a prophetic book. And in Daniel chapter 9, there's a time where God brings, and it says an angel flies to Daniel swiftly, bringing a message, a message that's urgent, a message of insight from heaven. And in that, he begins to lay out a a timeline, which takes place in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. But there's a timeline of of, of, of sevens and a number of things that are given But then look in verse 27. You're welcome to turn your Bible to scroll there or it will be on the screen. But this this whole statement of the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel says this. He will confirm, or really that the prophetic message from heaven says this. He will confirm a covenant, meaning the Antichrist, with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, referencing the temple. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. He says, Jesus, or really the, the prophetic angel, the angel bringing a prophetic message from heaven. So God sending a message to Daniel. And he's speaking of the Antichrist, speaking of the end times ruler. He says that he will bring and he will set up something in the temple. that The temple, the place that's set apart to recognize the presence of God among his people. He says that he will come and he will set up what is called the abomination that causes desolation. The word abomination, when you look at the word abomination, if you were to look it up today, if you were to Google it, you would find that abomination means something that causes great disgust or hatred. If you look up the word desolation, the word desolation, if you were to Google it today, if you were to Google it right now, the word desolation means a space of loneliness or emptiness. And so it says that in the end, what Daniel is saying is that this this ruler, the Antichrist, will come and he will set up something in the place that's meant for God, he will set up something that is an absolute disgust and something that is, is hated. Keeping in mind, this is God's perspective, this, this prophetic word. So he's saying it's going to be set up that from God's perspective, it, he hates it. And he hates it because it's, it's desolate. It leads to an emptiness. It does not produce anything. That it, it leads to a loneliness. And so going back to what Jesus says in verse 14, to answer why is it, why would it be, why would God call it the abomination that causes desolation? Verse 14, Jesus says in Mark, back to Mark 13, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. So he says that this, this thing that causes disgust to God is set up in a place that it doesn't belong And the ultimate outcome of anyone who worships it is an emptiness and a loneliness that produces nothing. So keep that in mind as we go on. Speaking of this abomination that causes desolation being set where it does not belong. Now when Jesus is saying this and he says this to his disciples, his disciples having learned and grown up in Jewish history would have known the moment that Jesus said the abomination that causes desolation, their mind would immediately have gone back to Daniel and the prophetic word that Daniel was given. And this phrase is directly from Daniel. So they would immediately have thought of Daniel's uh, prophecy and what he had said. But not only would they have thought back to what Daniel had said, they would have also thought back to 176, 178 B.C. In 178 B.C., 
Jerusalem was defeated by the king of Syria, and the king of Syria came in, and as he defeated Jerusalem, one of the things that he did, because he wanted to so import Grecian culture uh, and be able to overcome any type of Jewish nationalism to overthrow their rule, to overthrow their religion, to overthrow their nationality, what he did was he came in, and not only did he just destroy the place, but then in the temple, on the temple grounds, knowing that it was a place that was called to be holy and sacred and set apart for for the, the God that the Jews worshipped. He then came in and he set, up a t- he set up an altar in the temple grounds. He set up an altar to the god Zeus. And then on the altar to the god Zeus, he offered a pig, which is an unclean animal to the Jews, so he knew it would be disgusting, trying to totally defile the temple grounds. And then the third thing he did was in the temple itself, the, in the temple building itself, he brought in a trade of prostitutes and he set them up. So immediately, as Jesus is saying this, the disciples would have thought back to Daniel's words in Daniel chapter 9. They would have thought back to to this king from Syria when he came and he desecrated uh, Israel. But also, when Jesus says this, not only did it have past fulfillment, it had a soon-to-be-present fulfillment, and it had a future fulfillment that was about to take place. For the soon-to-be-present fulfillment, as the disciples are standing there just a few years later in 70 A.D., that in 70 A.D., that Jerusalem would fall ultimately to Rome because of an uprising that had taken place. And in 70 A.D., a general by the name of Titus would come in and would totally decimate Israel once again. He would break apart the temple to the point where all the stones were pulled apart to extract the gold. We talked about that last week. But then, the, then what he did to ultimately defile and desecrate the place was he came and this time he set up, this individual set up an altar to the god Jupiter in the temples and he began to offer sacrifices there. And then Jews were not allowed at all in the grounds. So not only was it a past fulfillment and a soon-to-be-present fulfillment, but the Bible also tells us when it comes to verse 14, Jesus says, when you see, speaking of a future fulfillment. To best understand the future fulfillment, I want you to look with me. It'll be on screen if you're not able to turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 3. This is, again, speaking of the Antichrist, the abomination that causes desolation set up in a place where it's not meant to be. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. We see the parallel once again. Something coming and setting itself up in the place of God that's meant to be only occupied by God. And in this case, the Apostle Paul is saying this is a future event. A man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is going to come. And ultimately, he's going to set himself up in the place of where God should be. And when we look at that, we can think about it, and we can think about it as as a past event. We can think about it in history, and we can think about it as a future event. But I want you to stop and think about it for the immediate greater application in your life right now. Because the, the abomination that causes desolation is set in a place that it shouldn't be. To properly break it down is that it's something that causes disgust to God, that leaves an emptiness within, that is occupying a place that it shouldn't be. Something that is disgusting to God, that, that leaves us empty, that is occupying a place that it should not be. 
And if you look at your life and you look at the things in your life, you look at the things that we give ourselves to, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That if we were to begin to assess our lives, I think it, would be, it could be very convicting if we were to examine our lives and wonder, have we given ourselves over to certain things that would, that would hold object over us, that occupy a place in our lives that they were not meant to occupy, to dominate things that they were not meant to control, owning our hearts and our time and our energy and our money, and ultimately leading to an emptiness within. And you might listen to that and you might think, well, what are, the, what are the things? And it could be any number of things. But anything that consumes you or fills your heart or takes a priority in your life over consistent and quality time with God is something to be that Jesus is causing warning to. And you might listen to that as I'm saying it now, and you think of the Antichrist as something future, but I'm talking about that immediate application in your life right now. And you might be here and you might listen to that, or you might be in, out in, on the podcast and listening to it in the future. And you might say, but that's a little bit of a stretch. That's kind of a bending of what Jesus is saying or what Scripture is saying. And to that, I would have you go to 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 2. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And let's just pause there for a moment. It says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ is from God, that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. When we think about acknowledging, it could be very easy to think about saying, well, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus came and lived on the earth to have the lip service. But earlier in, in, the, in 1 John, he's already identified to acknowledge Jesus is to align your life with Jesus. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims, whoever makes the profession to live for Jesus must walk as Jesus did. They must align their life with Jesus. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, it says, no one, who can, no one who claims to live in him continues to sin. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He says that not only is there a profession of our faith in Jesus Christ, but there is an alignment of our lives to pattern ourselves after Jesus. That doesn't mean you live a perfect life, but it does mean that you live a life that continually strives to put Jesus first in every single thing you do, and every single thing you are, in your thoughts, in your habits, in your actions, in your weak points, in your strong points, in your greatest moments, in your greatest failures, that in everything that Jesus is seen. And so he says that in, in 1 John chapter 4, that this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And listen to this. Which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Says the spirit of the Antichrist is coming and even now is already in the world. So the spirit of the Antichrist will one day be manifested as a future ruler, a future individual who will seek to take domain over the earth and ultimately stand against God's people. But Scripture makes it clear that while there's a future individual, the spirit of the Antichrist is functioning right now in our world, in our midst. When we think of Antichrist, sometimes we, we think of Antichrist and how the way we interpret it sometimes leads to a very different understanding of what it's intended to be. When we hear the word Antichrist, so often when we hear Antichrist, we hear anti, we think anti means against, so against Christ or against God. But that's not what the word Antichrist means. Anti does not mean against, it means replaces. 
So it doesn't say against Christ, but rather replaces Christ. So anything that replaces Christ as a priority in your life is the spirit of the Antichrist and has accomplished this purpose. So when you think about the abomination that causes desolation, standing in the place it's not meant to be, the thing that causes disgust to God, that leaves to an emptiness and occupies a position in a place that it should not be, the spirit of the Antichrist, its intent is to replace Christ as a priority in your life. If you were to examine our lives once again, and we were to examine the things that we allow to to occupy our time, to occupy our, our money, to occupy our energy, anything that consistently stands between you and time with God in his word, between you and time with God through his people, or between you and time with God through his church, his bride, that anything that consistently separates you from those should be examined in light of the very things that I'm sharing. Because the Bible tells us that this spirit of the Antichrist is here functioning with us now, right now. I want you to show you one thing back to what Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 13 that I believe has immediate application into our lives even now, continuing in this understanding of the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it ought not to. Look in verse 15 and 16 once again. Jesus giving the warning and he's speaking of the suddenness and all of that, that all of this will take place. The suddenness with, the, with which people will be caught off guard when, when all of these end time things take place. But verse 15, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. But he says there's going to be such a suddenness that people who are on their roofs, and he's not talking about people on the roof doing repairs, but rather the roof in, in, in Jesus' day was a place that was for uh, they would occupy it. They would entertain guests. They would go up and they would just relax. It was a flat surface. It had stairs down as well as on the outside. And Jesus says when you see these things happening, when this disaster begins to come, and he says it's going to come with such a suddenness, he says you don't need to run downstairs and try to get your cloak or get your, your shirts or pack your bags, but you need to hit the road. Or if you're out in the field and you realize that there's things back at the house that, that you should have grabbed, he says you just leave them and run. He speaks of the suddenness. But I think that there's an underlying thing that we can learn from, and he really was revealing the pull of stuff on our hearts. The pull of stuff, the pull of things, the pull of possessions upon our hearts. I remember hearing someone talk about once that if, if all of a sudden there was a fire in your house, what's the one thing that you would grab to be able to save if on your way out? I think Jesus, would, with what Jesus is saying, is speaking of the suddenness and the deception with which the Antichrist will come and really the spirit of the Antichrist working among us, working in your heart, working to undermine and separate you and replace Christ in your life. What are those things that your heart's drawn to? What are those things that your mind is settled on? It might not be so much as possessions, but it could be in commitments, things that dominate your time, things that command more time, things that command more money. What are the things? It could be what is it you worship? Not worship that, that looks like we talk about here on a Sunday morning where we're singing songs and raising our hands, but rather worship by way of the objects of our affection. For parents, it could be your children, it could be your spouse, it could be your work, it could be finances, it could be your retirement, it could be any number of things. Really, the list is endless. But Jesus continually says to his disciples, don't be deceived. Don't settle for something that occupies a place of your heart it's not meant to occupy, because when you settle for that, it will always deceive you and will always leave you empty. The spirit of the Antichrist is continually working to undermine 
and to replace Christ within our hearts. Jesus said in verse 5, not to be deceived. And I believe the greatest deceiver that you and I will most often face is the one that we look in the mirror every single morning when we get up. We deceive ourselves to think it's not that bad. We deceive ourselves to think, well, I can always pray in the car. I can always ask God for forgiveness later. I can always do this another time. I can always get rid of it a little bit. One more time won't hurt. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Look in verse 20, continuing on in what Jesus shares. He says that the Lord had not cut short those days. No one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. When we read what Jesus is saying and the warning that he's given, sometimes we can be so caught up with the, the, the onslaught of evil, and really our world has a fascination with evil. And if we're honest with it, oftentimes our own hearts have a fascination with evil. And we can look at this, and we can look at what Jesus is saying, and we can be caught up with a focus on evil. But if you really look closely at what Jesus is saying, the focus is not on evil. The focus is not on what the Antichrist is doing. It's not on the, the, the onslaught of wickedness in the end times. And, and Matthew's account in talking about this very passage, he says that the love of many will grow cold. And the focus is not on, on evil. The focus is on the heart and the passion of God in every season. Look in verse 20, he says that if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive that you're dealing with a world and a humanity that has consistently rejected him. But it says in the midst of that, God in his grace and God in his mercy once again extends mercy and demonstrates his mercy to ones who have rejected him. It's a reminder that Romans 5.8 says, but God and his love demonstrates his love towards us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That in every space and every moment and in every place of your life, that God seeks to continually demonstrate his love and his mercy towards you. The focus is on the love of God and the return of Christ, not on the, the onslaught of wickedness that comes. And so I would encourage you, when we talk about the Antichrist or we talk about in time, sometimes we can make the things the focus. We can make the things the enemy throws at us the focus. Or we can make the, the things that the enemy or the world produces as the focus. But Jesus never makes the enemy the focus. It's always upon God and his mercy and Christ's return. And so I'd love to end this morning by just giving you three very quickly, very quickly. I'm not starting another message, not starting a, another sub point within this, but three things very quickly that we can consider when it comes to the end times and recognizing that this is in response to that, that the focus is on God, the focus is on his heart and his love for us. And I think the first thing, three truths to consider or to live by. The first thing is to remember that in all things and in all moments, that God is supreme over all the forces of evil. That God is supreme over all the forces of evil. That means that God is supreme over every bit of evil and pain that you have felt in this life. That God is supreme over every force and evil. Sometimes we will get the, the impression, and again, not trying to make this a, a kind of a, a rail on Hollywood type thing, but you can at times, you'll watch movies. You watch our world, and we oftentimes get this picture that, that evil or the devil is the equal opposite of God, that, it's the, that he's the equal opposite of God, and that everything he, do, he produces is the equal opposite of God. But that's not true. 
The devil is not the equal opposite of God. The devil is the opposite of God, but he's not the equal of God. He is the inferior to God. When you look through Scripture, in Job, in the book of Job, a great story of of trial and difficulty and God's faithfulness in the midst of it, just demonstrating God's sovereignty even when we don't see it and know it and understand it. Job begins with with the devil coming to God and ultimately wanting to to work against Job and to try to undermine his faith and to bring all sorts of destruction and evil into his life. And in the midst of that, it begins with the devil having to, he's summoned before God, meaning he's not supreme, he's not God's equal. He's summoned before God to give an account of what it is that he wants to do. Because God is supreme over all forces of evil. In Luke 22, when, when the uh, disciple Peter, Jesus is talking with him and he says, Peter, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat. The devil had to get permission. Why? Because he is inferior to God's power and God's authority. That's why we're reminded when we read passages like Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's not a question with an open-ended answer. That's a question with a definitive answer. If God is for me, who can be against me? Absolutely nothing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Why is that? Because God is supreme in authority and power and dominion over any force of evil. It's a reminder in your life that he's always faithful and he's always in control, which brings me to the second thing. Not only is God the supreme over all the forces of evil, but secondly, God is always in control. He is always in control. That there is never a space or a moment of your life where God is not in control. He's always in control. When we look in with what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13, that when we see this, and in other places in Scripture, it talks about all that the enemy plans to do. Mark 13 is a little more of a condensed version of it. But we talk about the, the, the enemy's play, his, his final play, his strongest hand that he plays. At the end times with the Antichrist and all the things that come, he's played his final strongest hand. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Jesus then overthrows him with the breath of his mouth. It's like Jesus just says, and the enemy's over. It's done. It's gone. Why? Because God is always in control. That there is nothing the enemy does that ever thwarts God's control in this world or in your life. God is always in control, and he's always faithful. And then, friends, the last thing, the last truth to consider is that Christ's coming is certain but unknown. His, his coming is certain but unknown. And we're going to talk about that more next week when we talk about the return of Christ. But rest assured, when we talk about Christ's return, Sometimes we can talk about it as, as kind of a, a parable or something in the distant future that maybe could happen. I remember my grandfather. I've shared with you different stories about him over the years, over the, the times my grandfather would always talk about Christ's return, and he really did live with an anticipation and a watchfulness that any day, in any moment, Christ could return. But the Bible speaks of Christ's return as, real, as being a real event, just as real as you're sitting here right now. That Christ's return is real, but it's yet unknown. And so we'll look at that more in tomorrow, next week. But for now, I would encourage you, when you look at your life, know that God's always in control. And know that if you're a believer, Christ is coming for you.
And if you're not, then the best thing, the most important thing that you need to do is to make sure that your heart and your life are ready for Christ to return. Because we, we do often think of, well, life ends when we die. And yes, that's true. Life does end in this life when we die. And that's a step into eternity to begin our life with Him. But the Bible also makes it clear that there's a second way that we enter eternity. And that's when Christ returns. And you never know when. It could be this afternoon. It could be next second. It could be this week. We need to be ready. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And I want to... I want to pray, and I'm going to invite everyone to bow your heads and to close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to end things a little bit different this morning, and I'll explain to you what we're going to do in just a moment. But before we do, with every head bowed and every eye closed, not a person looking around, if you're here this morning and you would look at your life and you would say, I need to put Jesus first. I may have said that I believe in Jesus, but my life doesn't show it. If that's you this morning and you say, I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ, and placing our faith in Jesus Christ means that we repent or we return from our sin, our life, our way of doing things, and we turn towards Jesus. And as we do that, the Bible says that He comes and He changes us from the inside out. He changes us day by day, continually helping us to know Him more and to grow in being more like Him.